I invite you to open your Bibles to this morning's text, which can be found in the book of Romans, chapter 11, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 16. Romans, chapter 11, 11 through 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance mean but life from death? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that one of the effects of today's message by your Spirit, through your Word, would be that Jewish people that we know and love would become jealous of our Savior jealous of having Jesus as their Messiah and not just letting us Gentiles enjoy him. And I pray, secondly, that one of the effects would be by your Spirit, through your Word, that we stand in awe of your sovereignty and have great confidence that even in the face of great hardening and unbelief and stumbling, You are working out merciful purposes that we may not be able to see but can trust and thus have stability in our lives and love and fearlessness. And then, Lord, I pray that beyond my designs for this sermon, you would work a thousand good things in your people. They're looking at this on video downtown. Oh, God. Grant, I pray, that you would break through that medium and transform lives and heal and reconcile and humble and encourage and guide. The needs in this room are very many and very great, and you know every one of them, and you are a sympathetic high priest. Come, and beyond all that I can Dream or ask or design work, I pray. Help. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have two goals I want to get to at the end. One is to understand and to join God in the purpose that Israel be jealous of the church of Jesus Christ as we enjoy her benefits promised in the Old Testament. And secondly, that we come to see the spectacular, unspeakable, unfathomable wonder of the sovereignty of God over sin and over mercy. Start at verse 11. Who is the they in verse 11? So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, to get the answer, we go up and do a bit of review. Let's start reading at verse 7 to see who it refers back to. What then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And so Israel is pictured here as the corporate ethnic group as a whole, the people. There are some who are the elect who in Paul's day are a remnant. The rest, it says, were hardened, and they are the ones who failed to obtain. So the whole people are in view here as failing to obtain, with some exceptions, in the elect remnant. That's the group, I believe, who are stumbling in verse 11 when it says, They, did they stumble? Were they hardened in order that they might fall? They are lost and they are perishing. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. Note that idea, stumbling, because verse 11 says, have they stumbled in order that they might? So here... The group that is stumbling is Israel as a whole, ethnic, corporate Israel from generation to generation, stumbling. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, bend their backs forever. So I conclude the they of of verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall, is the corporate, ethnic, People as a whole in any given generation. Did God harden them so that... Now, what's the purpose? What's the answer to the question in verse 11? So I ask, did they stumble? Did God give them over to this hardening in order that they might fall? And he answers, no. That is not the purpose that God has in mind. I take that to mean he does not design Israel's final decisive abandonment. So as he looks out upon this mass of ethnic Israel that he has handed over to hardness and blindness, he asks, is that, is that it? Are you done with them? Answer, no, that's not the case. Did they stumble in order that they might fall for the purpose of being decisively, finally abandoned by God? No. Well, if that's not the purpose, Paul, what is? And he goes on. I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, that is not the purpose of their stumbling. Here's what it is. Rather, I'm in the middle of verse 11, rather through their trespass, their stumbling, their hardness, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So God's purpose in this hardening is not the final decisive rejection of Israel. It's not the fall of the people as a whole, finally. Ultimately, what is it? It's the salvation of the Gentiles. He ordains that there be disobedience and hardness among the Jewish people 
in order that there might be salvation to the Gentiles. Let me step back here and put a parenthesis in because I'm sure it it jars some of us to even hear me using the language of purpose in relation to God's relation to sin and hardening, like God has purposes. Now, to give you a category in your mind to handle such a thought, that when I hear coming out of my mouth that in the disobedience of Israel, God has a purpose and a design, to give you a biblical category for that, put in your head two texts. One is from Genesis 50, and one is from Acts chapter 4. The story of Joseph and the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. The reason for these two texts is that they force on us this category of thought. The story of Joseph, you know, his brothers sinned by throwing him in a pit and selling him into Egypt. And the poor fellow just experienced 17 years of worse upon worse upon worse till he was forgotten in the dungeon And then the wheel of providence turns and he's made the vice president of Egypt, has a wise plan for preserving food in seven years of famine. And lo and behold, the purpose of it all emerges, namely to save Israel alive. And in verse 20 of chapter 50, Joseph looks his brothers in the eye and says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Do not water that down. It does not say you meant it for evil. Then God discovered that you meant it that way and made the best out of it afterwards. That is not what the text says. There's two words, meant and meant, and they're the same. You meant it and designed it for evil. God meant it and designed it for good and salvation. We must have a category in our brains for God's holy, sinless purposes in ordaining that sin come to pass. The place where it is easiest to see that is the cross of Christ. Because... Every hammer blow on the nail was sin. The sword thrust into the side was sin. The crowns pressed on his head was sin. The spit in his face was sin. The expediency of Pilate was sin. The mockery of Herod was sin. The crucify him, crucify him was sin. The bartering for his garments was sin. The come down from the cross if you're the Christ was sin, sin, sin. And all designed by God. For our salvation. Written in detail in the Old Testament. We must, if we're going to be biblical, have a category for a sinless and holy willing that sin come to pass. If you don't, chapter 11 will make no sense to you. Or you'll distort it all out of recognition. So I am talking about purpose here. In fact, I'll show you in just a minute from the end of the chapter why it's so clear that the sinfulness of Israel was purposive in God's plan. 
But first, what we need to do is see elsewhere in the New Testament this connection between the loss of Israel and the gain of the Gentiles. Let's just make sure we read it again. Verse 11 in the middle. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, there are two places where Jesus made that very plain. One is in the parable of the tenants. Remember that parable where the owner of the vineyard sends his servants and they they beat them up. And then he says, I'll send my son. And he sends his son and they cast him out and kill him. He says, now, what is going to happen to these tenants? And the tenants say he'll get rid of them and get some that will give him his fruit. And then Jesus looks at them and says, this is Matthew 21, 41. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. God has poured out his favor on the Jewish people for 2,000 years since Abraham. They have now stiff-armed the Messiah. And he says, I now give the kingdom to another people. Now, Romans 11 is written to say, is that the final word? That's the point of Romans 11. And the answer is no, that's not the final word. But we see this interlude in God's dealings in a saving way with Israel as Jesus says, I take the kingdom from you and give it to a people producing its fruits. That's Christians. The other story in Jesus' experience was with the centurion. Remember, this remarkable centurion who didn't even want Jesus to come into his house, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus stands in awe of this man's faith and said, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. And then he draws this amazing conclusion. Chapter 8, verse 11 of Matthew. I tell you, many will come from east and west. That's Gentiles. And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to get right into the family. While... The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So two places, crystal clear, God decisively turns from and gives over to hardening Israel while he dispenses salvation and blessing on the nations of the world, which is what's happening right now. And then you see it unfold in the book of Acts over and over again. Take Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the synagogue. They reject it. They start to mock them and make fun of them. And this is what Luke writes. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, my point from chapter 11 of Romans is that is all by design. God didn't just. Try out Christ on the Jews. They, oh, that didn't work. Plan B, cross Gentile mission. That is not the way God saw it or planned it. 
Now, the clearest illustration of the purposefulness of it all is in chapter 11, verse 30 to 32. And I invite you to look at this with me. It's a very complicated sentence, but the point I'm making is clear. So we'll read it slowly, put in the necessary words, and you see whether or not you agree. 11.30. Just as you, Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience. So that's, that's verse 11 right there, the first half of it. By their trespass, salvation has come to the nations, to, to the Gentiles. You have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience. So... Verse 31, so they, Israel, too, have now been disobedient in order that purpose, by the mercy shown to you, they also subsequently may receive mercy. And then verse 32 is the clearest of all. For God, taking the initiative here, Ruling here, governing here, purposing here, designing here. For God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. This is plan which yields the next phrases. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. Who of you has ever known the mind of the Lord so as to become his counselor? Why does he say that here? It's because we're very prone to rise up and become God's counselor here. I wouldn't run history that way. That's a very inefficient way to do history. Ordain the fall and hardening of Israel so that salvation could come to the Gentiles, so that later on Israel would see and become jealous and be saved, followed by, we'll get to that in just a minute. That is a very strange way to run the world. Indeed it is. And it's all designed to shut our mouth so that every one of us, Jew and Gentile, are closed up to absolute mercy and grace. So I ask again, verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, that was not the purpose for their stumbling. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now it gets more unfathomable, purpose upon purpose. Through their trespass, salvation might come to the Gentiles. And then he adds, amazingly, so as to make Israel jealous. There's another purpose. So there's this hardening, stumbling trespass leading to the gospel, running in power to gather a church from the Gentiles, which then is now designed to produce jealousy in the people of Israel. Jealous of what? Jealous that we are enjoying their Messiah. That we are enjoying all the promises of the Old Testament. 
that we are enjoying the fruit of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. And they say, that's our child. Amen, would they say it. It's designed to bring jealousy, envy of the blessings of Israel that we Gentiles are now fully enjoying through the Messiah, our King and our Lord. And then he stuns us again. Purpose upon purpose upon purpose. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, salvation for the world, which it does, And if their failure, their trespass, their hardening, their stumbling, means riches for the Gentiles, which it does, salvation, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And in that little phrase, he packs in two more steps in redemptive history, both of which blow our mind away. So you have Israel stumbling in order that salvation might come to the Gentiles, in order that, what's the word? Full inclusion. That this this once hardened, this once stumbling, this once trespassing group would now be included in the mercy. And then he says, how much more after that will that mean? They have four stages. Israel stumbling and hard. Salvation coming to the Gentiles. All of Israel coming into the mercy, followed by what? What is much more? How much more will their full inclusion mean? And I get my answer from verse 15. For if Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's the much more. How much more will their full inclusion mean? It will mean resurrection. So, though it's very oversimplified, we have... God working with Israel for 2,000 years, letting the nations go their way. Sending them rain and seed time for harvest to give a witness to his grace, but basically focusing on Israel. Messiah comes and Israel rejects and God consigns them to a hardening which yields an overflowing Gentile mission by which almost everybody in this room has been saved grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree because they were broken off. When this is done and the full number of the Gentiles comes in, verse 26, 25, all Israel will be saved and Jesus will come and raise the dead. And forever we will be with the Lord. Now that's weighty and seems remote to some of you. So let me close by bringing up two practical applications that might bring it a little closer to home. First, what in the world can
can we do as a church and as Christians to advance God's purpose to make the synagogues and our Jewish friends in the Twin Cities jealous? Do you, do you, do you spend any time thinking about that? I hope you do now. I hope you have lots of Jewish friends. I hope you love them. I hope you're willing to die for them. I hope you never use Jewish slurs. But what can you do? Jealousy. Here's what you can do. You can understand and begin to make much of the fact that salvation is of the Jews. We are saved as Gentiles because God has temporarily taken his focus off of them, put it on us, and made us true Jews. We, he has grafted us into the rich root of the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. He has circumcised our heart. He's used all this language of Jewishness so that, as chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 says, we are the true Jews, or Galatians 6, 14 says, we are the true Israel. In other words, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the seed. We are united to Jesus, the seed, the Messiah, by faith. Therefore, we are inheriting all the promises made to Israel All the promises of Abraham are mine, Gentile though I am, because all the promises are yes in Christ Jesus, and I am in Christ Jesus, and therefore I am an heir of the promises. We need to make much of that with our Jewish friends. You got a Jewish friend you're going to be with at work? Try this, this week or next week. It's Christmas time, right? Jews don't celebrate Christmas. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. His birth is insignificant religiously to them. Why not say, I love your Bible. I love these great statements about Jesus in your Bible. For unto us a son is born and unto us a child is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And I love chapter 53 where it says he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole and by stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and God put on him all of our sins. I love your Messiah. I love your Bible. Oh, the promises of your book are sweet to me. I don't, if we don't talk like that to Jews, I don't know how jealousy will ever happen. I mean that. I don't think he's playing games here. Here's a confirmation that I don't. When I was done with this sermon last night, two guys came up, two Jewish guys, believers. And the first one took my hand and he said, that's exactly how I got saved. I started to see Christ in these Gentiles and their lives. I said, I should have the Christ. And I went home when I got saved and witnessed to my two brothers. The first one spit in my face. And the second one slammed his fist down on the table and said, I hate Christians. That was 10 years ago, and I said, where are they today? He said, they're both believers. 
And then the second guy comes up. He tells me his story. He also had two brothers. His, his salvation story was absolutely incredible how God cornered him over and over again. And on a midnight park bench in, I forget the city, there was a guy just sitting there and he sat down and this guy was dealing with problems and he was dealing with problems and suddenly he's praying to receive Jesus Christ. And he goes home and tells his family and they stiff arm him. And today they're all saved. I, th- I came away from last night feeling like God is on the move. He loves Jewish people. Just this Paul here. Do you notice what Paul does where he says, I magnify my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles so that I can make my own flesh, my kinsmen, jealous. So surely there's something to this magnifying the fact that we've got the Messiah. We've got the promises. We've got the forgiveness of sins. We've got the justification taught in Isaiah 53. And we should say things around our Jewish friends that give credit where credit is due. Namely, it all comes from their heritage. Well, that's application number one. May God give us wisdom and grace to so revel in Old Testament promises which are now ours so that the Jewish people envy our enjoyment of them. And the last brief thing is to stress the sovereignty of God here in the face of a of terrible unbelief and that the design is final mercy. And I just apply that in this way. If God is sovereign in the face of massive hardness and unbelief, he's sovereign all the time in your life. And I think to believe that, to rest in that, brings a tremendous stability into your life. It doesn't stop the storms from hitting you. But when they hit, if your roots are sunk down into truth like this, how unfathomable are your ways, you sovereign God, then you won't get blown over. And I would love to cultivate a church not easily blown over by death or sickness or loss of job. Or false doctrine. Some of you will go to the mission field. And some of you will do serious evangelism here at home. And I want you to feel undaunted when you meet resistance. Because Paul looked out over his whole kinsman. And there was just a sprinkling, somebody from the synagogue here and somebody from the synagogue here. And he just looked at this massive unbelief. And instead of saying, I don't know what to say because it looks to me like God's plan for his people is just one big failure. God grants him to see it's not a failure. It's a plan. Involves 2,000 years of church history at least. Maybe another thousand for all I know. So, seek to make your Jewish friends jealous of your love for the Messiah and your enjoyment of Him. And seek to embrace and enjoy the sovereignty of God. Let's pray.
Father, I ask that the effect of this would be to make us faithful and patient. I pray that we would see and feel that you are in control. I pray, O God, that even as we sing now, we would realize and enjoy the fact there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is justice. There is freedom, liberty in your justice that is more than liberty. There's a kindness in your justice that is more than liberty. So as we exalt together, stabilize us, strengthen us, send our roots down deep, I pray in Jesus' name.